0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, Joshua, chapter 8. As we continue our lesson in Joshua, chapter 8, I'd like to begin by borrowing and then paraphrasing the words of Trent C. Butler, one of the foremost Christian scholars and writers, in our era at least, on the subject of the Old Testament. And Trent Butler is a former professor at Baptist Theological Seminary in Switzerland, and he received his Ph.D. from Vanderbilt. And I I add that brief bio because I want to employ the thoughts of this acclaimed conservative evangelical academic, to help set the tone for our examination of the battle of Ai, the sin of Achan, and the great God principles that they demonstrate. Now, these things were meant not only for the ancient people of Israel, but also for the 21st century contemporary Judeo-Christian community. Now, in parallel with setting the foundation for this morning's study of Joshua, Professor Butler's profound thoughts also go right to the heart of expressing perhaps the, the primary goal of Torah class. And that goal is to demonstrate once and for all to modern Christians that the entire Bible is alive and well. And to turn our backs on any part of it is to deny the divine and eternal nature of its contents and of its origin. And I think we do so at our own peril when we set that aside. It's my fervent hope and desire for us together boldly and bravely to turn back that clock on our beloved church to recapture the spirit of the early body of Messiah. To return to those heady decades immediately following our Savior's passion on the cross. To when those very first believers, can you imagine it, met and worshipped and studied in spirit and truth and, and put what they learned into practice, in faith, and in purity and simplicity. It's my longing that somehow we can be released from, from the burden of weak and tired man-made doctrines that have divided us into competing denominations and sects and equally as sad, designed to separate us from our elder brothers in the faith, the Jewish people. Instead, let's take on the lighter yoke of God's holy scriptures and the immutable truths and those rock solid principles that they command, all at the direction of our Messiah Yeshua. Here's what Professor Butler says He says, Joshua chapter 7 and 8 play a key role in defining the identity of the people of God. Here the people of God return to the reality of life after all the festivity of their miraculous victory at Jericho, learning now to to deal with defeat at I. They learn that even God's treasured people face the anger of God when they act in self-confidence refusing to look to God for direction or giving Him glory for their victories. The lessons hard learned by the fathers, the patriarchs, had no effect on the sons in the promised land. They had to learn those lessons all over again. The people of God will not always travel giddy with joy after crossing through the Jordan on supernaturally dried ground and marching around a doomed Jericho that stood no chance against them, often God's people find themselves in utter defeat, falling before the Father with pleas for mercy and renewal. People of God do not only have problems relating to God, they also have problems relating to one another. They feel slighted by other groups who are also part of God's flock. Warfare among the members of the group can be the result. Through the agonies of defeat by their enemies and battling among themselves, Israel did learn one major lesson. They learned what it meant to be the covenant people of God. Covenant meant more than simply accepting wonderful promises of the Lord to multiply the nation and extend her power into the land of Canaan. It meant more than going through the ritual of circumcision and the celebration of the yearly festivals. It meant adopting the divinely ordered lifestyle. It meant making each decision of life in the light of divine leadership, not in the darkness of personal self-confidence or man-made rules. It meant that God could, and indeed would, undo the elements of salvation history, But he did it when he chose to punish his people, not in response to when his people were afraid and so retreated from hardship and setback. And what powerful words this learned man, Trent Butler, came to realize and utter after years of biblical study and maturation in his faith. And I hope many of you were as struck by them as I was. just as this beautiful mural behind me is but a backdrop for what goes on here in Torah class. So are the battles of Jericho and I but the essential backdrop to the meaning of Joshua 7 and 8. In these verses Israel and we are taught the meaning of life as lived in the light of the divine presence. And only those who are the covenant people of God can ever expect that divine presence in our lives. But they, and now we as believers, had to learn that the divine presence was demanding as well as promising. They, and now we, had to learn how to react, how to respond to a punishing as well as a merciful God. They and now we had to learn that the divine presence of Yehovah has greater value than material things that are temporary and fleeting. Okay. But thank you, Yeshua, they and now we also had to learn that God's anger is not his last word. He is willing to wait for the people he loves and who love him to seek him once again. To lament and then confess to him and at last to repent and agree with him. Then that wonderful message of redemption and peace with God again flows and abounds among the people of God. Let's reread the first few verses of Joshua chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Joshua chapter 8, page 249 in the complete Jewish Bible. Adonai said to Yahshua, Don't be afraid or fall into despair. Take all the people who can fight with you, set out, go up to Ai, because now I've handed it over to you. The king of Ai, his people, his city, his land. Do to Ai and its king as you did Jericho and its king. But this time, take its spoil and cattle as booty for yourselves. Ambush the city from behind. So Joshua set out for Ai with all the people who could fight. Joshua chose 30,000 men, the most courageous of his troops, and sent them out by night. And he instructed them. You're lying wait to ambush the city from behind. Stay close to the city, and all of you be ready. I and the troops with me will approach the city, and when they come out to attack us, as they did before, we'll run away from them. They'll chase after us until we have drawn them away from the city, because they'll say, ah, they're running away from us like they did before. So we'll run away from them. Then you'll jump up from your ambush position and take possession of the city, for Adonai your God will hand it over to you. When you have captured the city, set it on fire. Do according to what Adonai has said. These are your orders. How often in the Bible we read, do not fear, don't be afraid, as a preamble to some message by the Lord. You know, fear is both learned and instinctive, isn't it? Move a a, a day-old infant in a sudden falling motion and they react in terror even if they've never been dropped before. Make a sudden loud noise that harms nobody and I defy any baby, child, or elder not to be startled or frightened. And at the same time, Unless taught otherwise, children have little to no fear of approaching strangers or even going off with them. They'll even try to reach out and touch the the, uh, shimmering, shimmering hot flame. Well, once. They hadn't yet learned to fear the evil of men or the dangers of fire. Most young soldiers, untested, have little fear of battle. I mean, they're, they're nervous, not knowing what to expect. But most young men can't wait to experience it and have a chance to prove themselves. They're certain that their youth and their training and their strength, their passion, being on the side of right, is going to give them victory, even protection. They don't see themselves as mortal, nor have they yet stood next to the stench of death. It was like that for Israel as they entered Canaan. This was the second generation of the Exodus. They hadn't experienced the degradation and servitude of the first generation who had lived in Egypt. They hadn't fled across the Sinai with Pharaoh's soldiers nipping at their heels, as had their parents. This group knew victory. They had defeated the armies of the Transjordan. They had experienced a miraculous crossing over the Jordan River. They didn't even get their little toes wet. They, They knew only of making a procession around the dangerous fortress of Jericho, and then watching wide-eyed as the city walls just fell down, without their even shooting a single arrow in anger. They saw Joshua as their invincible general, with his brilliant battle strategies leading an enormous Israelite army and easily defeating their outclassed Canaanite foes. But then it happened. Achan had secretly misappropriated some of God's holy property from Jericho. Israel became arrogant and self-confident over their resounding victories and the Lord's anger burned at Israel for these sins. The consequence was that the army of Israel was stung by humiliating defeat outside the walls of Ai. Now they knew fear. Well, after self-examination, punishment of the guilty party, Khan, which is the satisfying of God's justice, communal confession, and a national reconsecration and thus restoration the Lord ordered Joshua to again attack Ai. Now naturally the formerly fearless troops and their families were afraid because of what had happened to them just days earlier. So the Lord prefaced his command to go to war against Ai by telling the people not to despair and not to fear because like Jericho, The Lord had already prepared the battlefield. He'd already turned I over to them. All they had to do was be obedient, grateful, and do as they were instructed. In fact, in verse 2, the Lord is even going to allow the soldiers to take the war booty of I for themselves. The Lord has decided not to impose the ban upon the livestock and the possessions of this enemy. That is, God has determined that he will not declare the possessions and animals belonging to the residence of I as his holy property. Why? Although we're not told specifically, it revolves around the ending portion of last week's lesson, that spoke of the principle and pattern of first fruits. You should refer to that lesson if you want to review or have a more extensive explanation. But in brief, the idea is that since Jericho was the first of Canaan to be taken, the first fruits of the cities of Canaan, the Lord was entitled to all of it. I being the second city taken meant that the people of Israel could share in the spoils. Now we're going to see this principle memorialized in the requirement that all new vineyards and groves planted in Canaan after Israel's arrival were set apart for the Lord until their fifth season. The first three seasons were to be set aside as a time of growth and maturation for the the plants and the trees. No picking of fruit was permitted. The fourth season was the first time the trees were ready to bear a mature crop. But the entire crop was to be devoted and set aside, given to the Lord. The people got none of it. The fifth season, the second season of an edible crop, the people could partake of it, getting actually the majority of the crop for food, although, of course, the Lord got his portion first. Thus, the disposition of the spoils of Ai, the second Canaanite city conquered, operated under less stringent rules for what the people could or could not take for their own, as opposed to the total ban that was placed on the first city, Jericho, the first fruits of Canaan. Well, Israel was camped at this time in Gilgal, which is about oh, 12 miles or so away from Ai. Not taking any chances this time. Joshua selects about 30,000 men that he considers his best troops, and they went out at night so as they wouldn't be detected. Now, night raids in this era were very rare. And when it did happen, to a fault, it was because the attacking force was smaller than, the, than, than their target. This is a strategy, though, that we're going to see Israel employ successfully a number of times because it was so unexpected. Now, th- the strategy was for the battle to be waged as an ambush. And the long and the short of it is that the 30,000 men would be divided into two groups. One group, a smaller group, will hide and remain unknown until the proper moment. Another, and larger group, will feign a more typical siege warfare style of frontal attack upon the gates of the city of Ai. When seeing the Canaanite troops on the walls of Ai, or rather, when the Canaanite troops on the walls of Ai see this attack, Okay, they'll respond to it. Seeing this, the Israel troops, Israeli troops turn and run like they've done before, and the army of Ai comes out from their barricaded city to chase Israel. Once they're outside of their stiff defensive positions, the Canaanites are now vulnerable. Joshua gives the signal, and the smaller group of Israel, Israeli troops come out of their hiding, they race into the emptied city of Ai, and they take it. Then Israel's to burn it. Joshua is using the defeat from a few days earlier to his advantage. He surmises that the army of Ai will expect Israel to do just what it did before, turn tail and run, when the battle gets hot. Setting the city on fire does three things. First, it stops the men of Ai from chasing after Joshua so that they can quickly return to their city and try to save it. Second, it's that the smoke that rises from it tells Joshua that his men have taken Ai. And third, this is the way that the Lord will get his portion of Ai. Remember, the Lord has declared that the structures and dwellings of Ai... And the people of Ai are his band. The Israelite peoples get to keep the livestock and all the people's possessions. They're devoted to God. Therefore, they must be destroyed and, generally speaking, burned up by fire. Just like a sacrifice on an altar. Let's read a little more of Joshua. Let's go back to uh, verse 9. we We're going to read verses 9 through 17. Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place for the ambush, staying between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. While Joshua camped that night with the people, Joshua got up early in the morning, mustered his men, went up to Ai ahead of the people, he and the leaders of Ai. All the troops marching with him went up, advanced, arrived in front of the city, and camped on the north side of Ai with a valley between him and Ai. Then he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Babel and Ai to the west of Ai. Thus the people arrayed themselves with all the army to the north of the city and their rear guard lying in wait to the west of the city. Joshua spent that night in the valley. The king of Ai saw this. So the men in the city hurried out early in the morning to battle against Israel. He and all his people at a meeting place facing the Arabah. But he was unaware that behind the city an ambush had been laid against him. Joshua and all Israel made as if they had been defeated before them and ran off on the road to the desert. All the people of Ai were summoned together to pursue them. So they chased Joshua and were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone after Israel. Pursuing Israel, they left the city wide open. Now, these verses go to great length to show us that all which God said to do, Joshua and Israel did. Now, this is as opposed to the first attempt at taking eye where Joshua and the army relied on their own ideas and their own strength now let us also not forget that while the earlier attempt indeed used a somewhat flawed strategy of using barely enough men for the job the real reason for the failure was not the strategy it was the condition of Israel okay? Israel was in a state of sin because of what Achan had done therefore the lord turned his face from israel with a catastrophic result major lesson alert here okay. sometimes when we seem to be failing or we're just kind of running in quicksand it may not be the plan it may be our relationship with the lord that's flawed it may be that we're striking out on our own, taking the credit for our earlier successes instead of giving it to God. Or maybe we're even operating under the burden of sin. And that's the problem. These things have to be remedied first. Then we can go ahead with our plans. See, It's in verse 9 that we get a clue as to the actual location of Ai. It's near Bethel, Bethel, all right, in the more typical English transliteration. Let me comment that scholars don't agree upon the exact location of Ai. And part of the problem is that the location of Ai, uh, rather, is associated with Bethel, and the location of Bethel is also controversial. The general area is accepted, but there are several possible sites that could be the correct one. Now further, as is the crux of archaeology, it's not that ruins that fit the biblical descriptions of Ai and Bethel haven't been found, because they have. But the time frame of their inhabitation doesn't fit according to the dating system that is widely used today. In fact, the issue of dating is at the heart of what has caused many archaeologists and so-called Bible investigators to declare that many of the places and events described in the Bible are just fairy tales. But it is also a fact that every year some new discovery is made that exactly corresponds to a biblical event and so another scriptural narrative that's been accused of being mere legend is proved there is a great deal of discovery happening as we speak today in the city of David the original Jerusalem that lies just a few hundred yards down the hill from the temple mount not only has the original enormous pool of Siloam just been found, and I stood in it just a few months ago, but a large palace structure has been unearthed that exactly corresponds to the time of King David. These finds, of course, don't deter some academics from continuing to insist that much of the Bible is just a series of tales with made-up places and people. Now, I, as most often identified today with a ruin called El Tel. And Betel is thought to be at the place that is today called Betin. However, it may be that Betel is not properly located, thus its sister city of Ai would also have to be moved. Anyway, it's an open question and I really have no opinion other than if these aren't the right places, wherever it is, it's certainly very nearby. Where they think it is. All right, now let me also remind you that I, the name of that city, is the Hebrew word for ruin or ruins. So some archaeologists argue that what was really attacked was Bethel, and later it came to be called by the name Ruin, I. In fact, a walled and fortified city from the 13th century BC has been found at what is usually thought to be Betel, and this certainly lends credence to that possibility. Now, don't let this throw you, because over time, long periods of time, cities got renamed. Over time, cities were destroyed and then rebuilt very short distances away and often given exactly the same name. Over time, we'll find multiple cities and places that even existed at the same time having the same name. So it's a complex matter. And we don't need to get upset if some scientist casts doubt on the proper identification of an ancient place. Only occasionally are ancient places ever proven to be what tradition says they are using the scientific method. After all, they didn't hang up little signs on their city walls saying, Welcome to Bethel! Okay? Now we begin to get some details about the attack, some of which we, we won't go into, such as compass directions and so on. We do find out, though, that Joshua put 5,000 men into hiding for the ambush, and he leaves 25,000 to make the show of it as they openly approach the city gates and then flee in hopes of drawing the fighting men of Ai out in the open and thus vacating the city. Well, in verse 17, we get another reference to this relationship between I and Bethel that puts a lot of doubt in my mind as to the theory of some that they were just the same place with two different names. This passage indicates that they were two separate cities, but they had a close alliance, and they fought together as one army. Now, that was a very usual and normal thing for that day, just as it is in our era, for a group of nations to form a military alliance and pledge to fight together if if one of us is attacked. What then puts the possibility that they were actually one place is that both cities were said to have been completely vacated with the implication that both were taken by Israel. We may may never know the answer to this. By the way, when it says in here that all the people left the city, it meant it was not referring to civilians, it was referring to the fighting men. Let's let's read a little bit more of Joshua now. Joshua 18-29. through then Adonai said to Joshua point the spear in your hand towards I because I'm going to hand it over to you Joshua pointed the spear in his hand towards the city the men in ambush jumped up quickly from their place the moment he stretched out his hand they ran, entered the city, captured it and they hurried to set it on fire when the men of Ai looked behind them they saw it there was the smoke from the city rising into the sky and they had no power to flee this way or that at which point the people who had run off towards the desert turned back on their pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city was going up, they turned back and slaughtered the men of Ai. When the others came out of the city against them too, so that they were surrounded by Israel with some on this side and some on that side, they attacked them, allowing none to remain or escape. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished slaughtering all the inhabitants of Ai in the countryside, in the desert where they had pursued them, and uh, they had all fallen, consumed by the sword, then all Israel returned to Ai and defeated it with the sword. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, every one in Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand, which he had used to point the spear, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and spoil of that city did Israel take his booty for themselves in keeping with the order Adonai had given Joshua. So Joshua burned down Ai, burnt, turned it into a tell forever, so that it remains a ruins to this day. The king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. At sundown, Joshua gave an order. So they took his carcass down from the tree threw it at the entrance of the city gate and piled on it a big heap of stones which is there to this day. Verse 18 makes it clear just who was running this battle. It was the Lord. And although in this age of Islamic jihad especially it's hard for us as peaceful believers, to see the Father as a divine warrior. In fact, that's exactly how he's portrayed here. I have many friends who simply cringe at this concept. And some who use the more typical contemporary evangelical approach to explain that while the God of the Old Testament was indeed a bloodthirsty, severe, punishing God, the God of the New Testament, meek, mild, loving, and and, and very peaceful. Now, I have little doubt that that when the church of the second century became Gentile-dominated, it became all the more difficult for the believing people of that day who didn't share Israel's long history to reconcile the God of the Torah with the divine Jesus of Nazareth, even though the Old Testament was still all that existed in the way of holy writings, and it would be that way for another couple of centuries, until the New Testament was eventually formed. Now, I have one dear friend in particular, a very articulate, intelligent, gentle soul, who avoids this subject at all cost. He's so bothered by it. And I don't want to show a hands. All right, But I suspect many in this room and many who are going to be listening on the radio and over the internet struggle with this exact aspect of our faith. I've struggled with it. Thus, we have one of the primary reasons that the church is so quick and adamant to declare that the Old Testament must be dead and gone, nailed to the cross. That the nature of God has fundamentally changed, and that the newest and best example of Jehovah is his son, Yeshua. Well, let me throw a little cold water on that concept. We have seen time and again that Jesus personally declared the Torah to be alive and well. Alright? Until that day in the future when the current heavens and earth will be melted into their elements. And recreate it to form new ones. That not one iota of its principles will be changed or abolished. But let me throw one other little reminder at you. Our Messiah may indeed have gone out like a lamb. But he's returning as a lion. This persona of Yeshua as a Messiah who wouldn't harm a fly... And thus indicates a new type of God who has only one side to him, mercy and love, is certainly not the one depicted in Revelation, is it? When Jesus returns, he comes back as, guess what? The divine warrior of the Old Testament. He's going to lead the saints in a literal holy war to end all wars. A war called by the church, the Battle of Armageddon. He's going to be ruthless in eradicating evil. He will give no quarter. He'll accept no excuses. He will personally, we are told, slay millions upon millions of God's enemy and lead his army of believers, us, to do the same all the elements of the conquest of Canaan are going to be present once again on this planet, only on an unimaginable scale. Only instead of the divine warrior giving his orders from his heavenly throne, or perhaps from atop the mercy seat, through a human general, Joshua, the divine warrior this time is going to be present in person in the form of Jesus Christ. We are told that the blood he will cause to be spilled by his own hand will run the length and breadth of the Jezreel Valley as high and as deep as the bridle of a horse. Our Messiah Yeshua, of course, and indeed is the perfect picture of the father if you've seen Yeshua you've seen the father he said he is kind and severe he is demanding and he's promising merciful and avenging prince of peace commander of the Lord's army the divine sacrificial lamb and the divine warrior lion and folks, I'm only giving you descriptions out of the New Testament. Now, verse 18 reminds us of a very similar scene when Moses was still living. Joshua is told by Yehovah to point his spear, possibly sword, towards I as authority and as a signal for the destruction of I to begin. Recall Moses using his staff to command the Nile to turn to blood, to itself turn into a serpent, to order the parting of the Red Sea. Recall how Moses sat on a hilltop overlooking the Israelites as they battled the Amalekites, holding a staff up over his head with the help of two assistants. Moses' staff, you see, was the symbol of God's authority placed in Moses' hand. That staff was also used to set things of God into motion. Saving saving acts of God were set into motion with that staff. Wrathful acts of God were set into motion with that staff. Moses was like a Savior, like a Messiah for Israel. Thus he was a shepherd And, of course, used a shepherd's staff as the symbol of his rule. Now, Joshua, on the other hand, was a military leader. He was a general. He was a fierce warrior. Therefore, it was appropriate that the symbol of divine authority placed in Joshua's hand was a spear or a sword, a symbol of war. Do you see this? Again, we have a perfect typology not only of Jehovah the Father but also of Yeshua the Messiah. Their nature is both the shepherd and the warrior. Not one or the other. In his first coming, Christ ruled like a shepherd. He ruled like a shepherd leader, Moses. In his second coming, he will rule like a warrior king. Joshua. And Revelation says that Messiah's rod of authority, his staff, the symbol of his authority, will be what? A rod of iron. Unbending, unyielding, hard, not dissuaded. When Joshua raised his spear at God's order, instantly the men lying in ambush raced towards the city through its gates and They captured it. They set Ai on fire, and as the smoke billowed skyward, the men of Ai saw it and knew they'd been had. They were caught like in a vice. Joshua wheeled his army around, 180 degrees, and charged the now distraught Canaanites. They couldn't flee back to the safety of Ai and Bethel, and so the army of God set about slaughtering every last enemy soldier. But as customary, they captured the king of Ai, and they brought him to Joshua. After the Israeli troops had finished with the enemy soldiers, they turned to Ai and killed every last human inhabitant, male and female. These human inhabitants were banned. They were devoted to God, holy property, and thus their destruction. Verse 27 tells us the only things that escaped destruction were the livestock, And the valuable possessions of the former residents of Ai. Those were divided among the soldiers who had participated in the battle. Verse 29 says that the king of Ai was hanged on a tree until sunset when he was taken down. He wasn't given the honor of burial. He was simply discarded at the gates of his ruined city. Stones piled upon his carcass as a reminder of his demise. Now don't get a mental picture, by the way, of a noose around this king's neck or frankly a crucifixion rather hung on a pole means to impale he was killed and then his body was impaled on a pole for all who passed by to see the worst sort of ending for royalty that was custom for that day as gruesome as it was let's read a little more of Joshua Joshua 30 to 35 I'm going to read all the way to the end then Joshua built an altar to Adonai, the God of Israel, on Mount Abal, as Moses, the servant of Adonai, had ordered the people of Israel to do. This is written in the book of the Torah of Moses. An altar of uncut stones that no one had touched with an iron tool. On it they offered burnt offerings to Adonai and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the Torah of Moses. Inscribing it in the presence of the people of Israel, that all Israel, including their leaders, officials, and judges, stood on either side of the ark in front of the priests who were Levites and carried the ark of the covenant for Adonai. The foreigners were there among the citizens. Half of the people were in front of Mount Gerizim, the other half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of Adonai, had ordered them earlier in connection with the blessing of the people of Israel. And after this... He read all the words of the Torah, the blessing and the curse, according to everything written in the book of the Torah. There was not a word of everything Moses had ordered that Joshua did not read before all Israel assembled, including the women, the little ones, and the foreigners living with them. Well, these final verses pose all kinds of problems, on one hand. And on the other, they give us principles that we ought to pay attention to. Even the ancient Hebrew sages agree that the episode of Ai then mounts Ebal and Gerizim are not in chronological order. For one thing, Israel was now based in Gilgal and would be there for some time. Ebal and Gerizim were to the north at Shechem. Now it's unimaginable that Israel would have Broken camp at Gilgal, went three days' journey north, had this ceremony, turned around, went back to Gilgal, so exactly when this all occurred and precisely what orders kind of up for grabs. Now this narrative is the fulfillment of Moses' instructions to Israel that you find in Deuteronomy twenty seven. Mount Abal and Mount Gerizim are twin hills with Ebal to the north of Gerizim. On the top of Mount Ebal Joshua had a, had an altar built following the instructions that was to be made of stones not shaped by iron tools. Now I told you some weeks back that without doubt some shaping of the stones did occur but just not with a metal tool. Rather flint knives would have been used. Now the ancient Hebrew sages give us a good understanding of the symbolism of using stones untouched by iron for an altar. And I find it quite profound for contained within this symbolism is this amazing irony that is our God. In his justice system the death of an innocent saves the life of the guilty. The purpose of an altar was to preserve life human life by means of atonement. The death of an animal provided the blood that would atone for the sins of men who deserve to have their lives terminated. So, for the average person who averts their eyes and, and thoughts over the concept of an animal dying and being burned up, they see the altar as a place of death. Not so. God sees it as a place of life. Now, iron is usually symbolic of destruction. Iron is used for weapons. Thus, it would be totally inappropriate for a tool made of iron to be used to form an altar of life. Even more, the altar is the place of attaining peace between the Father and mankind. It's not fitting that tools used for war Would scar such a place? This exact symbolism is brought across to the well-known proverb that in the day of the Lord, weapons of war will be beaten into plowshares. This is speaking of iron implements. And the notion is that iron that has up to now been used for war and death will now be used to bring forth life from the earth, crops, food, and peace. So pay close attention in God's word whenever it speaks of altars and iron. It has much deeper meaning than meets the eye. Now, in addition to building an altar, Joshua has some stone monuments built that has the word of God inscribed upon them. Now, there's wide disagreement over exactly what portion of the Torah was actually written on those stones. Some say it was only the Ten Commandments. Nobody seriously believes the entire Torah was written on those two stone slabs. When the place was ready, the altar was built, the stone slabs completed, then the Ark of the Covenant was placed there, and the priests and the Levites in attendance all Israel, including those foreigners traveling with them, stood before those two hills, some of them facing Ebal, the others facing Gerizim, and as instructed by Moses, the Torah was read. All of it, including blessings and curses. What was the point of these final verses of Joshua It was to show that Joshua was indeed the archetypal Israelite monarch. He did what he was supposed to do, and he ruled as he was supposed to rule. He followed the Torah, he ruled from the Torah. He understood that the basis for his leadership was the word of God, and the power of God, and that without it, his leadership was weak and bogus. It shows Joshua's great care to be obedient to God, which is the proper response. Of a covenant people to the divine covenant that the Lord's given to them. The last verse of this chapter points out something very important for Jews and Gentile Christians to always remember. The Torah is for everyone, it is for the women as well as for the men, it's for the children just as it's for the adults, and it's as much for the foreigner, the gear that sojourns with Israel as it is for the Hebrew. And it's for everyone to know. Even though it's tradition among Orthodox Jews that men and women don't study together, it's fully expected that the women study Torah as well. It's just that women study with women. Children begin studying Torah by the time they're five or six years old. And they begin... With the not easy book of Leviticus. Now, we could spend more time in Joshua 8, but we're going to need to move on, so let me close today with this thought. In this chapter, Israel is taught the real meaning of the command to obey God, it means to live the divine lifestyle that Torah teaches. But Israel also learns. An even deeper lesson. If and when their identity as the people of God is lost, there is a way back. And it begins with self-examination and then confession of wrongdoing. From there is repentance. And then a reintroduction to the word of God. The result of that is obedience on their part and renewal and redemption on the Lord's part. Have you walked away from the Lord? Do you have a spouse or parents or children who have fallen away and they're in such danger? Especially should their lives unexpectedly end? All is not lost. There is a way back. But it's a path, not of our design... Not of our making, because it's a very well-defined path. God-ordained, and it's written on those stones of Mount Ebal. It's the path of self-examination, confession, repentance, internalizing the word of God, and then obedience. The result? Renewal and redemption. Redemption. We'll start chapter 9 next week.